0: Underwriting for AutoLine this week is provided by.
1: Did you know advanced high-strength steels are the leading material used by automakers to achieve the new fuel economy standards? Advanced high-strength steels are lighter in weight and reduce greenhouse gas emissions without compromising safety, performance, or affordability. Steel, a sound, sustainable investment. Today, tomorrow, and beyond. For more information, visit autosteel.org. You know
2: why I pulled you over, ma'am? I need you to recalibrate the Doppler shift on the return signal. Radar's on the frisk.
0: Do Sonata drivers know something you don't? The Sonata from Hyundai. And now, here is your host, John McElroy.
3: The cars we drive today are going to be very different in the future. That's because automakers have got to greatly improve the fuel economy of those vehicles. And a key way to do that is to make them lighter. That means they're going to have to experiment with all kinds of new materials. But which materials are those going to be? Well, to help me get to the bottom of that, I'm joined today by Ganesh Panir, the Director of Sales and Marketing for Automotive and Specialty Products from Novellus North America. Novellus, by the way, is the largest producer of rolled aluminum in the world. We're also joined by Rose Rintz, the senior director of IAC Advanced Development. IAC is a company that supplies interior components to the auto industry, but with a specialty in plastics. And Blake Zaidema is the director of automotive product applications for ArcelorMittal USA, And of course, ArcelorMittal is the biggest steel company in the world. And with that, let me start with you, Blake, because steel dominates the way that we make cars today. Always has. I think it's going to in the future. But those steels are changing, and it's been very impressive to me to see how much lighter cars are getting just by using steel.
0: What's changed in your view? A number of things. Uh, Most of it has to do with getting the right strength grades of steel into the right components, and the steel industry has spent a lot of effort over the last few years understanding car designs looking at uh, the design and performance requirements, finding out what material properties uh, are associated with those, and then developing steel grades that specifically target the kinds of properties that are, are needed in those things. And a lot of the advanced steels that are coming into the market right now are basically designed to maximize performance within those design requirements.
3: Okay, for a layman like me who knows nothing about how this works, how do you make steel a whole lot lighter and stronger at the same time?
0: You make it stronger, you provide more energy absorption, so you can lose, use less of it. Uh, a lot of the, the weight reduction has come through using stronger grades at lighter thicknesses.
3: And yet, Ganesh, even though steel is getting lighter, you make aluminum and it looks like business is booming for you guys.
4: Yeah, absolutely, John. Um, you know, in the next uh, five years or so, we project about 25% growth in the market uh, for aluminum, and primarily because of the CAFE regulations that's coming up, the the first 2016, which the companies have to hit at uh, 34.5 miles per gallon, and the 2025 regulation, that's the 54.5 miles per gallon, which is a bigger target, right? So these are the bigger drivers for us uh, in in the industry that's creating a lot of pull from the OEMs for aluminum. And we're seeing aluminum being used in all kinds of things,
3: the engines, the transmissions, the, the chassis, the body, everything.
4: And, and if you traditionally look at it, aluminum has made a good penetration in the uh, engine cylinder blocks or suspension components and so on and so forth. But. From the body-in-white perspective, aluminum is starting to penetrate, and the study that was made by Ducker for Aluminum Association, you'll see that uh, the aluminum content in a vehicle is going to go from about 300 kilograms, 300 pounds a uh, vehicle today to about 550 pounds, right? That's nearly doubling, and a lot of this growth is primarily going to come from sheet aluminum that is in the body-in-white areas, examples like hood and roofs and uh, deck lids and door systems and so on and so forth.
3: And yet, Rose, plastics is, uh, growing as, are growing as well.
2: They are indeed. Uh, we're pretty flexible. We like to say plastics are used for a majority of reasons. Uh, if you look at the amount of aluminum or steel that's used, at equivalent strengths of materials, you can use half the amount of plastic. So it goes a long way toward trying to reach the type of weight reduction and so on. The other thing that plastic has, all the way from high strength, but really good ductility, so real good impact resistance, So when you look at, for example, an instrument panel or a door, or a headliner for that matter, all the type of side curtain airbags and uh, type of performance that we need to get to are already inherent in the plastic itself.
3: But just as Blake talked about different kinds of steels, there's all different kinds of plastics.
2: Well, there are indeed. A lot of people, I think, look at plastics and say it's another outgrowth of oil. Yes, it is. It's the same thing that you make gasoline from, but... The beauty in plastics is we're starting to reinforce them with some natural fillers, some corn stalks, you know, canaf, jute, bamboo for that matter, and it allows us to increase the weight, or decrease the weight and increase the strength even more to get towards the kinds of high-strength properties that you need for thin wall materials. I understand IAC has come up with some sort of blend of its own of plastics? I is as a unique interior company, we call vertical integration one of our strengths. And in vertical integration, to define that a bit, we take the different materials that could make up a plastic, blend them together to get very special attributes of that material. In doing that, we can go thinner wall. We can put in things like recycled carbon into our formulations. And if you look at the types of things we do, all the way from instrument panels to doors, to headliners to carpet. Everything virtually in the vehicle, interior of a vehicle, minus the seats and electronics, we do. And we can custom-tailor our blends to get to the certain attributes that we're looking at, from touch and feel and thermal management, all the way to impact resistance and other properties. Blake, you've got to
3: be worried, or are you worried, about all these other materials that automakers are start, starting to look at? Because people's perception is, steel is just heavy.
0: One must take the competing materials threat very seriously because we still don't know exactly where we're going to be in terms of the the actual fuel economy requirements, nor in terms of the uh, the cost of some of the other fuel economy improvement technologies. There are thresholds uh, beyond which some of these other materials could make very good economic sense. But from what we have seen right now, the the weight reduction potentials offered by today's current and emerging steel products provide sufficient weight reduction uh, to get us to a 54.5 mile per gallon fleet uh, within some of the, the reasonable assumptions. Now, will that do that for all vehicles and all manufacturers? That's where some of the risk comes in. There are going to be niche applications where we're gonna have to look very seriously about some of these other materials.
3: So as you look out down the rest of this decade, uh, what percent of cars is made out of steel right now and where do you think it'll be 10 years from now?
0: Oh, 10 years from now, steel is going to be a significant part of the fleet 10 years from now, Uh, particularly in some of the smaller vehicles, the ones that already are closer to their fuel economy targets. Uh, These vehicles don't have the same real demand for weight reduction as some of the other ones. Uh, The areas perhaps of of greatest interest in potential are the the bigger vehicles. They're further away from their goals, they have a lot longer to go, Uh, and some of the other technologies are a little bit more expensive uh, to get these things way up to their targets.
3: You're talking big SUVs, pickup trucks and... Large
0: passenger cars, uh, pickup trucks and the like, certainly.
3: Ganesh, I've got to believe that part of the, the, the challenge that aluminum has in selling to the auto industry is uh, the material itself is more expensive, yep. but it's also going to require other manufacturing techniques. Yep. You, you, yep. The, the way you stamp it and weld it together has all got to be different. Yep. So there's not just the cost of the material, yep. but changing the, the assembly and yep. manufacturing areas.
4: The, the way to look at it, John, is really if you look at it by component by component, aluminum is lighter, but it's more expensive by the pound. Uh, compared to steel or other materials. Um, the right way to look at it is look at it as a system-wide solution. If you put a set of aluminum components together and get the right uh, durability and the crash performance and safety performance for a vehicle, you would be actually able to design a uh, body white system that is lighter, that's about the same level of cost as steel, and still provides the performance or exceeds the performance level that's been set forth by the, by the OEMs. The classic example is the, the uh, Land Rover, uh, Range Rover SUV that, that you have probably seen at the Paris Auto Show.
3: Right? Yeah, the new Range Rover SUV, yeah. they took, I think, an average of 900 pounds of weight out of the vehicle, largely by going with so much
4: aluminum in Exactly, it. exactly. The other examples out in the market are the Jaguar XJ, the XK, and the Audi A8. And some of the performance vehicles have taken the uh, limit to the other side. have gone into highly aluminum-intensive vehicles.
3: Mm-hmm. The, they tend to be lower-volume vehicles, yeah. certainly. Yeah. Do you think we're going to see aluminum-intensive vehicles in very high production?
4: Uh, I, we think so. We think so. Given the, uh, given the uh, CAFE regulations that's coming up and, and the targets that the OEMs are against, there has to be a solution that involves aluminum heavily, right? And also, multi-materials like plastics and steels and so on and so forth should have to be a part of the solution to achieve the targets. Rose, of course, one of the things that uh, people always
3: bring up—in fact, you brought it up earlier— Plastics are made from oil mm-hmm. if the price of oil goes up isn't the price of plastics plastics going to go up along oh, For with sure
2: it. absolutely the price will go up as the the price of a, a, a gallon of oil or a gallon of gas or whatever else goes up. They're all predicated on oil to begin with I think what we're trying to do to Eliminate that cost target out of plastics as oil goes up plastic goes up We're filling it with things as I said before with fillers that aren't expensive, that are natural, that are not petroleum-based. We're also going as far as looking at recycling efforts, uh, which I think plastic have a tremendous advantage in. How much recycling can we put back in and still get the same performance? So although we may be using one pound of material that might come from you know, a tenth of a gallon of gas, we might indeed be using more of that as a it, therefore diminishing the amount of oil that we need to get out of the ground to make the original plastic. When I hear
3: things of uh, jute or soy or these other natural materials going in, is that just to create uh, an environmentally you know, benign or, or positive image about the material? Or d- does it really lower cost and, or b- boost the strength?
2: Well, I think uh, you have to look at several things. Uh, we look at carbon cred- credits as well when we look at reinforcing plastics or where we would get the canaf or jute from if we're filling it. The disadvantage now is that in using canaf, for example, which mainly comes from Bangladesh, from India, when you look at it from the perspective of, yes, I'm reducing the amount of oil I need, you're looking now at carbon credits. How much does it cost to ship that across the ocean in order to put it in a vehicle? So we're really looking at less dependence on oil. We're looking at increasing stiffness so that we can go to thinner wall and go, hence, to lower weight. The, I think the real advantage or disadvantage whoever can figure out the solution is going to be how do I get the right amount of filler at the lowest cost and still say I have a green environmentally friendly solution think right now when you look at natural fillers or natural polyols such as soy from sugar or other sources it's generally more expensive so the company or the person or the material that's developed the first one to get there with a cost-effective solution with lighter weight and natural based materials is going to be the real winner. Rose, how does
3: that affect the manufacturing process though? It's one thing to have these materials and uh, their performance attributes, but do automakers have to change or suppliers even
2: have to change the way they manufacture with this? You know, that's a great question. Part of the, if I back up for a minute, part of the total cost of a part is in the capital that you use to you know, make the tools to get the material and then to manufacture it into a molded part or a stamped part. Um, With plastics, we really do not want to change the manufacturing process because there's inherently a lot of capital in our plants, and other people's plants for that matter. And one thing um, that's very specific to plastics, you can't change a tool to get a similar fit next when it butts up against sheet metal. For example, if I make a plastic door and it's next to a steel fender, I need to make sure that gap or distance between the the door and the fender stays consistent. So to get to your question with that premise, when we put fillers in or when we look at at natural products or we even look at soy-based or bio-based type plastics, the fit must be exactly the same as it was before we did that. So typically what we'll do is we'll look at either implementing them in a new design so we can change the shrink or fit of that tool or put enough of that in to an equivalent, say, telk filled product so that it will be the same size, same fit and finish.
3: Same question to you, Ganesh. Uh, As we talked earlier, you've got to change some of the things that you do in manufacturing. When you stamp aluminum, there's more spring back, so you have to take that into consideration. Uh, Earlier this year, General Motors announced that it had come in with maybe something of a breakthrough in how you could spot weld Aluminum together. Do
4: you, do you see it the same way as a breakthrough? Absolutely, John. Uh, if you look at uh, manufacturing of aluminum, even though sort of fundamentally it's, it's a metal similar to steel, metallurgically it's quite different. It springs back and uh, the, the stamping and the forming has to be understood very well by the, by the uh, engineers and the OEM community in general. Right, that's the first part. The second point, putting, putting aluminum together, joining them either through rivets or uh, laser welding or uh, spot welds, you know, there is a lot of uh, breakthrough that's been happening and uh, more, more has to be done, right? Especially when you're talking about doing this on a building on a mass scale, right?
3: So, uh, what we see in uh, aluminum cars right now is mainly riveting or laser welding. Exactly. Primarily, you would see riv- riveting and riveting as a way
4: slow to... and cumbersome exactly. way of joining cars together. Exactly. Spot welding has been proven itself over the years, and that's what the manufacturers are trying to get to spot welding aluminum. And there has been some breakthroughs. For example, the uh, uh, rivet spot welding that GM has done through with uh, by removing the oxide layer that uh, falls on the tips. I was very impressed to see that
3: GM has been using this process without telling any of us in the media about it or the outside world for that matter. How soon do you think that this process might spread across the line, so to speak?
4: I can take, and in the next uh, four to five years, they could fully get it into their uh, lineup as as I see it. Mm -hmm. Blake, one of the advantages steel seems to
3: have uh, over every other material is, A, it's been around for an awful long time, so out in the field, at the dealership or repair shop level, everybody's got all the, the, the tools that they need and the knowledge to work on steel, don't they?
0: Mostly, I think most of the tools are out there. Uh, you repair cars by cutting pieces out, while welding things back in, uh, and the basic repair procedures have not changed that much. What we have to be careful of is making sure the repair shops are aware of which grades of steel are in which parts of the car. Uh, it's very popular to put a frame up on a rig and heat it full of uh, uh, torch uh, heat input uh, and bend the things back in. If you do that to a, a dual phase or a Martin martensitic rail, you're gonna completely anneal it and destroy the properties. So there's a big effort going on to educate the repair shops. And uh, it's the steel guys, as well as we're working very carefully with the car guys and the repair folks to make sure that uh, dealers and repair shops alike are educated.
3: How do you keep up with that if you're a repair shop? because as you're pointing out, all these new steel grades are coming out. They're going in different places on a car, depending on which model and which car company you're talking about. Uh, And this is happening at an accelerated rate. How do these shops keep up with it?
0: The shops themselves uh, have repair procedures that are provided by the the OEMs. Now, I'm not an expert in repair. I've worked a little bit with the repair guys, but my understanding is each new vehicle has a repair procedure. And laid out in there are exactly the types of procedures, uh, bend, repair, replace. Uh, and as long as the repair shop is reading those and adhering to them rigorously, uh, the repair should be made in a safe manner.
2: John, that's not so different from plastics. When you think of you know, the number and type of plastics that go into the interior and the exterior, for example, when we switched from what we called Xenoy bumpers back in the early 90s, late 80s, to olefinic bumpers, completely different repair procedure. So we put out service bulletins through the OEMs to make sure that they were aware that it had changed and it, it would require a different finish or a different you know, fix to repair that particular item. How was the experience in the field with that? Uh, I would say uh, initially uh, in going from what we would call a very amorphous type, non-shrinking, easy-to-adhere-to bumper to a... Um, Teflonish type bumper. It was difficult. I think you would have seen a lot of early vehicles not repaired correctly where you would see pieces of paint off of the bumper, for example. That was because of an, either an incomplete repair or not correct repair. But I think as we learn with anything, any change, it becomes relatively easy now when you look back and say that was an easy fix.
3: Ganesh, it's one thing if the bumper doesn't look all that good, It's another thing if the whole frame or chassis of the car is not properly repaired. How is aluminum going to deal with that, of this learning curve
4: that's got to take place out in the field? The challenges are quite uh, similar, John. Uh, If you look at the type of alloys that go into making aluminum, there are probably about uh, five or six different alloys, particularly customized either for skin applications that get the crisp lines that's needed or the crash applications where it has the strength or the deep draw that's required for uh, inner panels and so on. The right alloy and the material has to be put at the right place, the joining types have to be done right. So there's a lot of learning and education that needs to be done in the service sector, particularly the OEMs have to take a lead and and, uh, walk through the education throughout the process. I imagine it's
3: one thing if, you know, you mentioned uh, Audi and Jaguar Land Rover, it's one thing if people bring their cars back to the dealership and, there's more control over how these things are repaired and made sure that they're done properly. What happens when they get out in the independent repair
4: shops? That, that's certainly going to be a challenge. The independent repair shops are going to be quite surprised with the material that they see in, in these cars. And, and uh, the, the fear is, you know, doing improper repairs may lead to uh, liability and so on and so forth. Yeah, that's uh, one thing that I don't think the, the
3: regulators maybe take into consideration. When you, It's easy to say, oh, you've got to make the fuel economy better. Yep. Then you start to run into all these real-world uh, uh, issues, yep. l- l- let's call them. And uh, another thing, too, even though fuel economy, uh, Blake, is, is driving all this, uh, what about total sustainability? It, it, it's one thing to make a car lighter for the time that somebody's going to be driving it. Ultimately, it's got to be recycled, and hopefully that material be used back in the manufacturing process. What's steel's take on this sustainable, sustainability issue? Well,
0: steel has an advantage going in because there is already a very, very uh, prevalent recycling program going on. I've seen some of the statistics from the Steel Recycling Institute, and depending on the year, uh, the rate of auto recycling varies from probably 98 to 101%. 101%? We recycle sometimes, more than there are. Sometimes we recycle more cars than we actually make. And because much of the steel is magnetic, it's fairly straightforward to uh, to bring it out. Um, so that, that is going to continue. Now, there, there are a lot of other sustainability issues. We have to look at total carbon footprint. Uh, even though steel vehicles are, on average, slightly heavier than some of those of the other competing materials, steel has another advantage in that the energy to produce it. In, in primary metal form is quite a bit lower than some of these other materials. And certainly as cars get better and better fuel economy, the manufacturing CO2 emissions phase becomes more and more prevalent. And so that's something we have to, to worry about. Uh, we, we have to make sure we're not getting slightly higher, f- uh, slightly better fuel economy and yet putting more CO2 in the environment. And then the other one that I don't think anybody has really touched upon is steel is made In the United States. We mine the ore here, we mine the coal here, we mine the limestone here, and we do all of the primary conversion to steel here in the United States. And that's not necessarily the case for these other materials. So from a long-term jobs standpoint, that's something else we have to think about. Good point. Ganeshwa, what's
4: aluminum's uh, story on sustainability? So here's where, uh, John, we think we have the biggest advantage. Uh, Aluminum is infinitely recyclable Right, So you can take aluminum and convert it into the same form, the same original product that it came from. The material doesn't degrade. You can do it infinitely over and over. And uh, compared to the um, energy that it takes for primary aluminum to produce, uh, the recycled aluminum takes only about 5% of the total energy. And and uh, we as a company try to promote about 80% recycling input for us. And that's where we want to go Particularly in the automotive sector, um, you know, unlike uh, steel that's far mature, aluminum is not, Right, so we need to set up sort of closed-loop uh, aluminum recycling uh, process to recover the steel uh, aluminum and put it back in the, in the process.
3: Rose, Ro, same question.
2: Well, the um, plastics industry recycles a lot, and not just from uh, virgin automotive parts into virgin automotive parts. We also take, for example, baby diapers. We could put those into certain applications. Uh, I hope you the, clean the, them first. Well, <laughs> odor is certainly one of the requirements. But yeah, we, um, uh, from a capability standpoint, we could put anywhere from 5% up to 100% of recycled back into the material. And we can even mix materials at times. So really driven by what kind of properties it needs and blending is everything, right? We can blend one part with another and get very similar performance.
3: And when you look at the, the CO2 footprint of plastics, what's the story on that? Well,
2: much as Blake said with the steel industry we also if you look at oil um, which plastics come from the plastic plant is generally right at where the oil is refined and us to us everything is about shipping when we look at carbon footprint it's putting the manufacturing facility for that plastic component very near to where the car is going to be produced so you know, from a supply chain perspective we produce with American-made oil. Um, we try to do it at the same facility, and those plastic pellets then are molded into a part very near the assembly operation, so our carbon footprint can be very low. Blake, how much
3: does, do the car companies care about carbon footprint? When, when you go to sell to them, I gotta believe number one is price. Then, of course, you gotta have all the performance attributes and all. In, in Steele's discussion, does this come up at all?
0: It does. And in fact, we are frequently asked for information specifically on the, uh, the carbon content of, uh, of steel. Uh, the challenge, though, is it's, it's, it's difficult to translate that into a, a, a final car's footprint because there are literally thousands of components, each of them own uh, having thousands of uh, individual components. So keeping that, that accounting going has been something which is extremely, extremely challenging for them.
3: And, Ganesh, do car companies ask you about
4: uh, carbon absolutely, footprint? Especially, particularly with aluminum's recyclability, we get a lot of questions on what's the carbon footprint for, for uh, aluminum body and white that we are going to produce. Supply, right? And, and uh, for example, some of the manufacturers like Daimler, you could go to their website and they are very meticulous about tracking um, the, their footprint, carbon footprint for their supply all the way back from mining all the way down to the aftermarket and services. You same.
3: mentioned Daimler. Is, isn't that more important in Europe
4: than just about anywhere else? Uh, being Absolutely. able for a car company to track what its total carbon footprint is. Absolutely. Has. I mean, it, uh, historically, it's been uh, stronger in Europe, but we see that momentum coming towards North America as well. And, and believe it or not, even in uh, emerging markets like China and India. Hmm. They ask you that too, Rose?
2: All the time we, um, and in fact, when you start putting in fillers, as I mentioned earlier, when you talk about, you know, canaf coming from India, that obviously would have a very large carbon footprint. So what we're doing is looking at alternative fillers that are grown and raised right here in the United States that can be used to lower that carbon footprint.
3: Just amazing, you know, here, here we are talking all these different things. You, you all are talking up each and one of your materials. I can only imagine what automakers and suppliers have got to go through as they design the thousands of parts that go into a car. It, it, it's got to be just a, a real challenge for them to try to figure out the proper material to make anything out of. But I want to thank all three of you for having come in today. You sure raised some very interesting issues, some that I want to dive more into. But Ganesh Panir from Novellus, Rose Rintz from IAC, Blake Zaidamoff from ArcelorMittal. I want to thank you all for having well. shared your time with us and your knowledge. Yeah. pleasure to be here. And I hope you all enjoyed it, too. And as you can imagine, if, if you had trouble, uh, some struggle keeping up with all this, just imagine what the car companies are going through. Anyway, join us again next week for AutoLine Auto This Week.
0: Underwriting for AutoLine This Week is provided by...
1: Did you know advanced high-strength steels are the leading material used by automakers to achieve the new fuel economy standards? Advanced high-strength steels are lighter in weight and reduce greenhouse gas emissions without compromising safety, performance, or affordability. Steel, a sound, sustainable investment. Today, tomorrow, and beyond. For more information, visit autosteel.org
0: why because plants need water to grow because baseball's played in the summer oxygen and hydrogen because i forgot to get a receipt why why not why, why don't you go ask your dad do sonata drivers know something you don't the sonata from hyundai